Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to David Fincher's excellent adaptation of Gillian Flynn's, not Gillian, Gillian Flynn's John Gerl. And joining me today to discuss its twists and turns in excruciating detail are James Dyer. Hello. Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Phil Dissemlian making his spoiler special debut, apparently. That's correct. Hello. Really? You've never done this before? I don't think so, no. So I don't really know what I'm doing. Okay. Well, that's been evident in every single one of our podcasts. None of us know what we're doing, Phil, to be quite frank. That's what I'm banking on. That is true. Uh, Before we delve into Gone Girl, uh, a word of warning. As ever, this is a spoiler special. Emphasis on spoilers. We will be discussing third act revelations aplenty. Some revelations in the second act and at least one revelation in the first act. So if you haven't seen Gone Girl or if you haven't read Gillian Flynn's book, stop listening and come back when you're done. We'll be here. We're not going anywhere. Still with us? Excellent. Uh, We're going to kick off with some thoughts from the director of Gone Girl now uh, before kicking on ourselves. When David Fincher, for it is he, came to London recently, Helen... Hello. For it is she. And Dan Jolin, who's not here, but would sound a bit like this if he were. Hello. Went along to grill him mercilessly. Enjoy. So, David, thank you very much for joining us. Um, No problem. I'm going to jump straight in on Gone Girl and and ask if it's the closest we're ever going to come to a Fincher (laughs) rom-com. I I don't know. I mean, if you had told me that I was going to uh, attempt to make a satire from a from a supermarket thriller I, I don't know that i don't know that i would have believed you I, I i think i i never know i think it's it's always silly to say i'll never make another serial killer movie it's silly to say i'll never make another movie about somebody who ages back as soon as you as soon as you make a pledge something will end up on your desk that makes you reassess everything hmm. hopefully hopefully you get those things there's elements of it that that really seemed like you were playing with you know the the tropes of that genre if you like yeah i don't know what genre it is i mean i i think the the thing that i was so impressed with was the notion that um you could start with a mystery that it could you know run a few laps as a absurdist thriller <laughs> and that it could you know, finally kind of sprint across the finish line as a, as a satire. So I, I don't know what genre it is. And, and, and I tend to, I mean, not, it's not that I, it's not that I don't think about the things that I do, but I, I, I don't want to delve too deeply into why I think it works. You know, I, I just want to kind of go with it, whatever the prevailing wind is. If it's, if it's, if it's going in the right direction, you know, don't question it. Um, there's obviously an issue with balancing the sort of the he said, she said aspect of, of the story as it, as it unfolds and as it's told. And there's also the fact that both of them seem to be unreliable narrators. So to, to at least some extent. So is there, is there, was there always a, a name to kind of put doubt in our mind about essentially everything we're seeing and hearing? I think the thing that impressed me the most about the first draft that Gillian wrote was she seemed to have a really innate understanding of the fact that you couldn't have two warring subjective points of view, that you had to have an omniscient, an objective point of view um, in the foreground, in, in, in the he said. And which is interesting because you have pages and pages and pages of his thoughts, his thought process in the book 
but you can't use them. You have to have him, you have to glean what's going on inside him by his behavior. And so she sort of innately understood that. And I thought that was, you know, incredibly mature way to approach it, which is one is, you know, the, the, she said is entirely subjective. These are her thoughts. And then the other is something that has to play out behaviorally, um, in the middle of a missing persons investigation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's a, he said, she said, I think it's a, it's a, she said, and then he's got to deal with it. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, I'm guessing you've been talking a lot about the casting of, of Ben and Rosamond, but uh-huh. I want to ask you okay. about Tyler Perry because <laughs> he is, you know, he's brilliant in this film <laughs> and he's also just, I mean, he's a one man film industry pretty oh, much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, how was it? I aspire sort of... to Tyler Perry. I, I, <laughs> I aspire to be somebody who's that in, in control of their own, uh, uh, life. But, um, Tyler was somebody that I had met in real life. You know, I, 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 I not under the auspices of of him being an actor, director, producer, writer, but but he was he had a studio in still has has an even bigger studio in in Atlanta, and um, I was down there scouting sound stages for Benjamin Button, hmm. and uh, we drove up through the gates of his studio, and I saw him standing on the roof of this three story structure with. Uh, a radio controlled airplane just flying it around. And I remember meeting one of his assistants who said in this incredibly um, business-like voice, you know, Mr. Perry will be with you in a moment. And I thought <laughs> that's terrible to me. The guy who kind of, I'll be right there. I just have to finish flying this RC plane. Um, so I love that about him. I just love the, I, I love that he was, you know, he has all these, di- you know, he's, he is a, He's a multi-processing individual. Hmm. He's um, every single day. If you call him, if the if the shooting call is six a.m. and you need the cast in at five, he's there at four fifteen. I mean, he's always forty-five minutes early for every single meeting. He always has his iPad and he's always writing a script. I mean, he is the most. He's the hardest working man in show business. Wow. And, and and did he come to you happily as you know just just tell. To- put me here tell me what to do no 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 he's smarter than that (laughs) (laughs) he's uh, he uh he was at first you know i I called him and just said hi there's a character in this uh, i'm i'm making a film of this book you may you may have heard of it you may not have he hadn't um you know i mean he's got five tv shows or something uh that's a you know a good 300 hours a week you know of of hard work right there so I sort of walked him through it and I said, I'd love you to play this um, sort of superstar attorney. And he laughed and he said, really, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, okay. I mean, l- let me, let me read and, and let me read the script and then let me read with the cast and see if you think it's good. And we did it on Skype and it was kind of like, you know, the titles to the Brady bunch or the, <laughs> or, or Hollywood squares. It was all these squares with all these different people reading the different characters. And I remember he was, you know, I don't, he wasn't trying to talk me out of it, but he was definitely saying, you know, you, I, I'm very busy. You have to work around my schedule. I'm only, you know, I have not, not in a, not in a, he wasn't making room for himself. He was just simply saying, 
I'm only going to be able to give you this time. I'd love to do it, but, but know that, you know, outside that I, I have to, I have so many other things I'm doing. So I said, okay, fine. Let, well, let's do the read through and let's see how you feel. And, uh, and we did the read through and at the end of it, I, I called Ben and I said, so what did you think? He said, Oh my God, Tyler Perry is going to kill this movie. <laughs> and, uh, and so I called Tyler and she said, so did you like, he said, yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was funny. And, and, um, um, let's get started. What's been the reaction in audiences so far? I mean, if, if, if it's test screened, I don't know, in terms of um, the, the comedy, in terms of has it has it been connecting with people? Have people um, been laughing or been too shocked? Um, both. You know, <clears throat> the, the movie is, the, the content of the movie, the, the not the content, I mean, yes, there are some, there's appalling behavior in this movie. And there is, there are definitely moments that are meant to be, that's not funny. That's sick. Um, but I think it depends on what you, I think it depends on how, how much you're willing to, how much you're willing to accept the absurdity of some of the tangents. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely a, there is a sexual dividing line in this, story you know there's the entrance of a, a character that allows and i have not seen this not be true i've it's every single time i've watched the movie with an audience um there's a character who enters the movie that you know all of the women cross their arms and lean back in their chair and <laughs> and pass judgment and all of the men sort of lean forward and, and say wow this just got really interesting and it's it hasn't failed us yet it's also, it really divides Team Nick from Team Amy. And I think that's sort of the fun of it. You know, I hope that, I hope that it's not, you know, we're not, we're not trying to provoke fights, but I'm open to <laughs> violent discussion. Hang on. Didn't you say you wanted to cause 15 million divorces? No, I was being facetious, <laughs> and, 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 which is my right. Okay. But I'm interested that there is a Team Amy to some extent. Oh, you would be shocked. I mean, there uh, again, and I don't want to get into the specifics, but there's um, a sex scene in the movie that I, we've seen women cheer. Wow. It's more than a little nutty. That is quite disturbing, actually. Yeah. Well, there you go. I, I don't want to get too nerdy just as we're talking about sex scenes. But... Get nerdy. Get <laughs> nerdy. Um, and, and I think I'm okay to... If, if I'm not okay to mention this, just shut me down. Okay. But there seems to be significance of board games. The board games seem to have significance in this film. No, uh, yeah, I mean, I got a lot of that, and it's, it, I, I, Gillian and I had a lot of discussions, and I tried to. There was a whole, there was a whole section to a sequence where Nick Dunn takes the lead investigator and the disappearance of his wife Rhonda Boney um, to his office, and originally in the script there was a description of all the titles of the books that he has. And we were supposed to kind of move along the spines of these books and sort of get an idea of who Nick is based on what he reads. Hmm. And I, <laughs> I told Gillian at the time, I said, I'm going to shoot this, but you have a problem in a mystery because people are taking in 
everything that they're seeing and everything that they're hearing and they are processing everything as if it's a clue <laughs> and you have to be extremely careful not to exhaust their ability to keep track of all things that you're showing them i mean the reason that mastermind becomes an issue is because there's a shot of it being placed into on a shelf with a bunch of other games if she had just taken it said oh great and then we never saw her disappear behind the bar and set it down there'd be nothing there'd be no reason for the audience to catalog it they would just they would treat it as as it's meant to be treated but i wanted to show that the that when we cut away from from that scene we cut back and they're playing this game i wanted to show that this is a slightly juvenile endeavor that these people do on a semi-regular basis it, mm. it is it's something that they've done it's it's about their backstory it's yeah. about brother and sister and so the the i actually believe that mastermind was probably the easiest game to clear <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so the actual the actual title i mean it could have been monopoly but i think monopoly was too expensive but um so I wish I could tell you that it has has but, some preplanned significance. But they're playing the game of life. Yes, or, and and for one cheesy joke, you know, <laughs> just for one cheesy. joke. But then joke. later we see the board game Dominion. I don't even remember that. <laughs> oh, your pet theory. My <laughs> pet theory is blown out the water. Yeah. Um, oh well. You know, the, a friend of mine um, who is a genius um, once said to me. Uh, I was about 18, 19, and he, we were discussing Chinatown. And he said, um, you have to watch China. I was t just telling him what a fan I was of the movie. And he said, you have to watch it again. And this is what you have to be um, aware of, is this ongoing visual motif in the movie, which is two um, duplicate circles, one of which is imperfect said it happens when he puts the watches under the car and one of them gets run over. It happens with the slitting of the nostril. It happens with the imperfection in Faye Dunaway's eye. It happens in the taillight of the car that he breaks so he can follow it. It's obviously mother, sister. Um, there are, and, and I was, or the, the bad for the glass, the, the glasses that are broken in the, in the seawater and salt water at the, at the end, there are these constant reiteration of this idea. And I, um, did a, a director's commentary or an appreciate appreciator of the director's commentary for, um, Paramount with Robert town. And I told him this, he said, <laughs> Never thought of it. <laughs> I remember thinking, wow, it was such a good, it's such a good film theory. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, it has no place in reality. <laughs> but it's a subjective experience. Of course. Of course and, you of know, course. it's no less valid for that. No. Just as my board game theory. There you go. Is no, no less valid. I, absolutely. <laughs> I think you should build as much of a consensus for it as you can. Excellent. Thank you. Um, tell me about then putting the kind of procedural aspects together because you had this great double double act of, of Kim Dickens and Patrick Fugit who I just thought were they were just this wonderful match somehow him sort of growling his way through it and her just being okay let's be calm let's be reasonable let's sort this out my biggest worry was that that Boney would become Marge Gunderson and I and I didn't want that I, I wanted her to be 
I didn't, I, you know, it takes place, you know, dead nuts in the middle of America. And it, and it takes place in a very small town. But I didn't want to be uh, making fun of the of the local detectives. I wanted them to have a dynamic, and the and in the book it's very much the case. They're given a lot more um, real estate for their relationship. But I really like the idea of showing, you know, one of them is just kind of beholden to expediency, and he's saying nine out of ten times we know which way this goes. Why are you resistant to that? And I think, and I think she's a good detective. And I like what she says when she says, just because some blonde dunce says he did it doesn't mean, you know, we, we have to do our due diligence. And, and it is, you know, the, the contrast is there between real police work and real detective work and the mob, the, 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 the lynch mob. You're going to be working with Gillian again, right? I am already have been and, and yeah. never stopped working with her. Okay. <laughs> That's Utopia? Yep. Is it the, the adaptation of yep. our Utopia? Your Utopia. <laughs> wow. How's that going? It's really good. Okay. It's, it's yeah, it's very, it's inspired. I mean, the original was inspired and her adaptation, you know, takes it that much further. We were discussing this in the office this morning, actually, yeah. and uh, we were all having trouble imagining anyone but Neil Maskell as as Arby. He's pretty great. So, you're, are you bringing anyone over, or are you planning to just completely start? No, from scratch? we'll start over. I mean, you know, I mean, I think they're going on to season three, mm. aren't they? So, so um, no, it'll 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 exist. I mean, again, our first season is ten episodes, so you know, we our first season is a season and a half, mm -hmm. um, but. No, the idea is to do, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of the same sort of deliciousness to it um, and and the same, you know, probably a little bit more of the old ultraviolence. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, she's, she's good. Cool. And, and you're working with Elroy as well on something. The demon true? dog, yeah. The demon absolutely. dog himself. Yeah. I mean, this match made in hell, right? Well, we'd worked together years ago on a, on a on a script called The Night Watchman, and and we tried to get it made at uh, I think at that time it was at maybe it was Warner Brothers, but it was it was New Regency, but I think they were at Warner Brothers at mm -hmm. the time. And we, you know, I wanted uh, Robert De Niro, and I wanted to do this. It was in, you know, it was it was about racism and mm. and it was really tough stuff. And Elroy wrote just a fantastic script that I think became a movie called Dark Blue. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, Kurt Russell. Yeah, yeah. and um, so it was. Um, it was a it was a harrowing harrowing, um, L.A. You know. Um, LAPD ramparts. Um, it was it was it was the real deal. Hmm. And at the time, I mean, and I loved working with him. And I, you know, would have done anything to get the movie made. And and uh, also, you know, we went to him for his blessing on the on the Black Dahlia. Yeah. Um, because that script, the script that I was involved with, that that I helped develop for six years. Um, you know, it was 200 pages. And so we finally had to go to him and say, 
you know, what do you think? And he gave it his blessing and, and that's the movie that we ultimately couldn't find financing for. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so we've talked off and on for yeah. 10 years, uh, longer, 13 years. So, yeah, I'm hoping something comes of it. And this is a 50s Hollywood thing? Yeah. Period? Yeah. Noir thing? Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> one word at a time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, is, is that one of the pleasures of, of television at the moment, that you can, you know, if, if the right length is 200 pages, that maybe then it, you know, it belongs as a miniseries or something, and you can still yeah. do it justice? Well, I think it's, I think it's this. The last hundred years in cinema has gone toward distilling and perfecting the experience of, you know, being in a room with 700 people and the lights going down and the movie beginning. You know, it has led us to a, a real kind of ultimately limiting understanding of what the audience wants. And I think that when people pay 15 bucks to sit in the dark for two and a half hours, they want something that has a kind of narrative traction that um, I don't know, I'm not going to say it precludes uh, characterization because certainly wherever you know wherever there are cracks or fissures in the in the edifice of the story, you want to have something growing in there and have something that that um, makes it real. So there is characterization in movies, but it's harder and harder to be able to um, offer an audience a value proposition that includes characters who are layered or confusing or, um, you know, complicated. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, the ballistic nature of the modern cinematic narrative, I'm not going to say that, I mean, certainly, you know, in the second season, Hollywood second season, you know, first season spandex summer, there's not a lot of room for character. Um, you want your villains bold and dark, and you want your heroes, um, you know, earnest and and trying really hard. And but then you get into you know affliction season, and you have room for you have room for nuance, but you want your you want the afflicted to be earnest and forthright and trying really hard. So when you talk about antiheroes or when you talk about um, characters who are maybe require a kind of evolution, maybe that's better on TV. Maybe it's better over the course of 13 hours to, to talk about the conflicting nature of an antihero or the conflicted nature of an antihero. I think television has... Um, absorbed a lot of really good writers and a lot of really good actors because it gives them parts to play. And then, you know, the other side of it is once you've, you know, once you've charted this course, you know, and you're 39 hours into your show, how do you keep it from devolving into yeah. Peyton Place? <laughs> so, but you're not planning a Soderbergh-style retreat from cinema anytime soon, we hope. I don't do anything Soderbergh style. He is, <laughs> he is an iconoclast. He's, uh, he's doing it. He's doing it all his way. No, I mean, I, I think we share a lot of the same frustrations. Um, but no, I think he, he's, you know, I mean, he cuts his own stuff. He shoots his own stuff. You know, he's, he's an anomaly. There's nobody like that, that I know of. Um, who's that kind of well-rounded in 
in in in every you know fingers in every slice of every pie mm-hmm. but um no i'm not planning i mean i i am planning on you know if if i can get if i get the 10 scripts that i like i would shoot i would direct all 10 of those for huh. hbo and but you know then you have to figure out well how do you then go on to season two so at some point it has to get i, I can't I, I i don't honestly think i can do it for six years so if, but if i could do it for one i know i would be happy doing that Okay, it's uh, up to us for now uh, because David Fincher wasn't as willing to discuss spoilers as some directors, but still good. Yeah, yeah. He, he was actually in some ways less spoilery than his leading lady, Rosamund Pike, who, which, and it's usually the other way around with mm. people, so go figure. Interesting, but there's uh, it's interesting with this one because spoiler, the concept of spoilers is a book out there. There's been a book out there for a few years now. You can go and read it, and the, the film is fairly faithful. So, spoilers is a bit of a strange, nebulous concept, really, with this one. It is a little bit, I but I guess say. people haven't read the book. Even when a book is a blockbuster these days, it still gets, you know, read yeah, by fewer people. Nobody reads these days, Chris. What are you talking about? <laughs> people, are, people are debating whether or not you should read the book before you see the film, or vice versa. What do you think? Did you? And have you? I have read the book. I read the book um, beginning of last year, and... Did you read it because you knew there was a film coming, or did you read it because it was this big phenomenon? Uh, I read it because there's a big phenomenon. Okay. Likewise. Hmm. Which is why I read, I'm reading Harry Potter at the moment. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know how to answer. I mean, having read the book, I didn't feel like the film, it ruined the film. I mean, it didn't really matter. You sort of knew it was coming. Although, obviously, Ben Affleck did suggest that the third act was going to be utterly different. There'd be aliens, there'd be, there'd be some form of zombie virus that, didn't, that doesn't obviously come to fruition. It's really very faithful. So mm. I was I was expecting something that didn't come about. What about you, James? Weirdly, I think I think reading the book is good and bad. As with all these things, I think oftentimes reading the book does ruin your your enjoyment of the film. Cause you know what's going to happen. I think in this case, the ending is so divisive uh, and potentially so ruinous to the experience if you don't get on board with it. That if you've read the book and you've had some time to digest that and get over it, then you enjoy the film immensely. I hated the ending when I read the book, like properly hated it. Why? Um, it it didn't sit right with me. It seemed sudden. It didn't it didn't feel it wasn't a fulfilling ending to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it, and I know it's a it's a it's an in, immensely cynical uh, story about relationships and marriage and sort of the hatred between uh, <laughs> married couples. Um, but the ending was so downbeat that a part, the part of me that loves Richard Curtis movies just died inside. <laughs> um, and I find that quite hard to deal with. But when I watched a film, I really loved the film because there was no disappointment. I knew what was coming. I knew what the ending was. And actually, I think the film did a better job of serving it uh, than the book did. Mm. But so, so there's that. So it can soften the blow for those reading the book first. It's because the ending of both the book and the film bypass your usual Hollywood through the cliches and the the baddie mm. doesn't get to come up and is that is that maybe one of the reasons why you think the, the ending's slightly controversial or yeah, didn't th- work for you maybe that too, although really it's not a film with goodies in it I mean they're all quite it's, morally compromised I'm, I'm sorry I, I, this is my big thing with it she is on a different plane of evil <laughs> to him I mean he has an affair and is a bit feckless she's a freaking psychopath so she's, she's Hannibal not, Lecter she is she's Hannibal Lecter yes, she yeah. is yeah I didn't say they went great to be <laughs> she's a um, world class seri- uh, well she's got the potential to be a serial killer if, if yes. she really put her mind to it you oh, could, yeah. you, interestingly though I think this is this it, is Amy Dunn by the way played. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming everyone's now yes. seen the film and this is who we're talking about but 
Nick Dunn played by Ben Affleck. Interesting, though, I think this is... It's not a a concoction of the film. I think you feel it much stronger in in the film than you do in the book. I mean, she's always a lunatic. I mean, she's an evil genius. But I think she's more sympathetic in the book because it dwells far more on her childhood and the fact that her parents, who essentially, you know, prostituted her childhood to make this Mm. series of of children's books, uh, gave her the most twisted upbringing that, frankly, she's fucked in the head as a result of it. And you feel slightly sympathetic towards her for that. All of that stuff, I think, gets ejected bar I think one or two scenes where there's sort of allusions to it in the film and as a result you genuinely do feel that Amy Dunn in the film I think is she's just a sociopath you well, know I mean first of all I feel like the, the the film yes it does definitely shorten that you know that section mm. of the book and I think it's, it's actually pretty well paced in terms of as an adaptation of the book I think it's it's they've made the cuts quite sparingly and quite cleverly so they cover I would say 90% of the book's plot um, but obviously in, in a you know in a filmic length of time but even in the book I kind of feel like if you're blaming your parents after the age of about 25 <laughs> like it's your fault at this point like you know absolutely you can blame your parents until you're about 21 and then just grow up already like, unless, so get over unless it. their influence has been so heinous but if it's just an emotional torture, yeah, if, I think that's okay. Yeah, can, can, I, like yeah. obviously there are, you know, outliers yeah. here. You yeah, know, there are. Um, and, and, you know, full-on, actually abusive people and, and so on. But generally speaking, in a case like this, it, those parents do not excuse murder. You heard it here first, kids. Empire Parenting 101. Do whatever you like, they'll get over it by the age of 21. <laughs> Unless your Thank parents you, Helen. Fred and Rosemary West, in which case it's okay to go on a bit longer. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I think this is... This is for me, the, the film fell down um, in two places, and one of them was what James was just sort of referring to. Because it, of the structure of the book, part of it is is this opening chance which establishes their characters and Amy's character and gives you a bit more understanding of how she could have got warped and how her parents' expectations and life could have like created this confluence of events which led to this mental dislocation sort of thing. But then it becomes the unreliable narrator. She's writing a diary... Mm. specifically to um, incriminate her husband. But the film really jettisons a lot of the first stuff. So you're just left with the unreliable narrator. And then you have the Ben Affleck character, Nick's unreliable narrator. But Mm. it's from his perspective. So his character's more dimensional. And that's an interesting thing that David Fincher said, because he, in that interview, said that he doesn't, or he implied certainly that he doesn't see Nick as an unreliable narrator, that what Nick's experiencing is actually happening. Now, obviously, that's that's true as far as it goes. You know, what we see happen to Nick is is meant to be happening in the story of the film. But when Nick says things, when Nick denies things, I took from that his implication that Nick was telling the truth when he says, for example, that the, the pushing her against the stairs never happened and that kind of thing. So it, it's, that a make weird, David... it's a weird change, for, uh, for me anyway, slightly from the book, that his story is to be trusted. But does that make David Fincher the unreliable narrator? Because he visualises that scene in the film. And, you know, and you're led to believe that what you're seeing is what's happened. No, but you're, he visualises that as part of Amy's story, which is the bit that we can't trust. Oh, yes, like, although yes. Although subsequently told that that bit is true. The bit where she well, they're walking through the snowstorm that actually happened that was something that was that was real that was exactly yeah. so yeah so 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 Ben Affleck backs her up on those elements yes. but stops short of backing her up on the on the banisters you know scene confrontation mm. which means that we're supposed to 
discount mm. that as part of her unreliability. Also, she, she, I think she pretty much reveals that it's fictional towards the end when she tells him she's going to need him to go along with that particular review. <laughs> but interestingly, um, one of the things that Fincher does change from the book is that at the end, you do see Nick's ability to, to visit, physically hurt her. Mm. He shoves yes. her against the wall. It doesn't happen in the book. Yeah. So Fincher does reintroduce the idea that maybe that's some sort of weird wish fulfillment that's come to pass. Amy's made it happen, perhaps. Again, she may be more, more culpable. Also, the uh, I went back last night after having seen the film and reread the last couple of chapters of the book and uh, just to you know see how much it had changed. And it's interesting. Uh, first of all, that confrontation does kind of happen in the book. However, it's very in- interesting, I think, that the language has changed. Uh, in in it, she calls herself a bitch. And he, in the book, he calls, him, he calls her a bitch. She calls herself a bitch. And for the film, Earmuffs, Children, it's been changed to cunt, uh, which is a very powerful word, especially for Americans to use. Uh, over here, you know, in the in the UK, and obviously being of Irish extraction, you know, we use it like punctuation. However, uh, in America, it's a very, very powerful word to use, and this word has clearly been used, I would say, deliberately. Mm. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think there's an interesting bal- a shift, I would say, in the balance of power in how the ending of the film is presented and how the ending of the book is presented where uh, she is given a last word in the in the book. I know it's an ironic uh, last word, but it does seem to me there's a real shift of power towards Nick Dunn in the film. He's given the last voiceover. He's given all the power in that relationship uh, going forward, even though it's going to be a very, very strange relationship. Mm. Sorry, do you think that? Because, I mean, I would have said that, you know... He's a prisoner it's, in that relationship, well, yes. Well, exactly, but yes. I mean, he comes back and he's a, he's terrified of her. Yeah, but um, so she, so she. And also, I think by physically taking... She's a prisoner in that relationship as well. Yeah, prisoner of the relationship, maybe, but I don't know that she's terrified of him after I that. I think no, no, she no, is fully in control by the end of that film. She mm-hmm. has she's orchestrated this entire situation. Uh, and she doesn't. I mean, and again, it's like that. You can see that scene where he's in bed and she comes up and she says, "I would never ever hurt you," and you don't believe it for a second. She says, "But I need you to play your part." And he's clearly palpably afraid of her that she will kill him at some point. Uh, and you're right. It's it's interesting to see him when he does slam her against the wall. I think to a certain extent that's the uh, the nod that you never got in the book where. You feel in the book that he takes it very passively, that he goes along with this thing and there's never any recourse. And, you know, while we're in no way condoning sort of violence against women, there's that point where you actually you feel the rage in him that he is sort of kicking back against this. And there's also that scene with Margot in the kitchen where she's in tears. Now, mm. remind me, you've reread the end of the book. I don't remember that scene from the book. Uh, and I, I found that very gratifying in the film that you want someone to be the voice of the audience, someone to say what you're thinking, which is, are you mental? Mm. Uh, and I think that really helped. That scene well. does exist to an extent in the book, okay. but it's with the the cop, the cops there as well. I remember that, cop. but yes, yeah. the scene with her when she, they're they're trying to get her, and he's writing a book, isn't he? And then she kind of yeah. undoes him. With but they're both essentially saying, "Don't don't live with that woman; she will yeah. kill you at some point." But I don't think she will. I don't think uh, that relationship is going down that road because I just don't think it could. I, I actually think you're right on that. I think in in both the the book version and the film version, they find this new weird equilibrium. It's mm. bizarre. I was simply the second thing that I thought the the, the film slightly fell down on, um, and I said this is someone that really liked it, is that it it sort of becomes to me like a, almost a horror film. She ceases to be a believable character. She becomes an embodiment of something evil, really. You know, and we don't use really evil in a, in that context because it's so absolute. Uh, Gillian, is it Hillian Flynn, has compared the ending to um, Rosemary's Baby. 
I don't want to... Can we spoil other films in a spoiler? <laughs> spoiler, 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 spoiler. It was like 1968, yeah. Okay. Like... The ending of Rosemary's Baby, where, where Mia Farrow gives birth to Satan. And, and you know what? It's okay. <laughs> I could love this baby, even though it's, you know, Beelzebub. Um, it's a similar thing, you know. She's become... And, it, and that's the way the world's going to be now. But I can't buy that relationship. I, I, the film ends when it ends. I can't see any afterlife for those two. Mm. I think certainly her her story only works in in that carefully edited version that we see on the page and on the screen. If you actually apply logic to it, it kind of falls apart. But what you say about her being sort of almost cartoonishly evil, I think is really interesting because it's something I thought as well. To, to me, Amy Dunn as a character is is everything that misogynists think women are. You know, she makes false accusations of rape, which is a, a monstrous thing to do. She lies, she manipulates. Um, she f- uses pregnancy as a weapon. Uh, she uh, ultimately, you know, hate, kills a man to get her own way. She is everything that, that the worst kind of misogynist thinks all women are. And I wonder if if that's a kind of a, a statement in itself. I, I don't, I'm not saying for a moment that either Gillian Flynn or David Fincher are misogynists, but I feel like putting that character on the screen is a really interesting and weird thing to do because on one hand you could you know confirm some weird people's prejudices of, about the kind of people women are but I think on the other hand it undermines them because it shows right if you genuinely think that women do these things if you're if you're one of those people that's what this looks like <laughs> it looks like this completely outlandish mm. crazy figure do you seriously think that's something that happens regularly so I think you know there's there's a really interesting and a bizarre um, lesson maybe to be taken from this and I worry that people will read it completely the wrong way In a bigger context of gender politics and mm. these issues then yeah that, that is problematic I think um, David Adelstein in the New Yorker well, New York Magazine said that made the same point about fatal attraction that it mirrors you know the fact that Glenn Close's character was was expressing was embodying the West Wing world here, West Wing world here, shibboleths <laughs> shibboleths of, of feminism in a psychotic way was really damaging in that way, you know, to make for for those, you know, for her to be basically an evil feminist yeah. in a big blockbuster is is is, is worrying. And I think, I mean, to be honest, I mean, like, just to be clear, I do think we should have bad female characters. I don't, in any for a second, want you know all women on screen to be paragons of goodness because it's so boring. And I think that female villains are you know an under underexplored minority of villains, really. So I think it's it's good in some ways that she's so bad. But she's such. Uh, it's, it's just that she conforms to these kind of these cliches, or as you say, these shibboleths, um, which you know is is a real. It's going to be interesting to see how people respond to this because I think there's a there's a minority of people out there who are going to uh, see her as as some kind of truth, and I don't think she is. I don't know. Um, do you think people might see her that way? I, th- I thought the moment the twist is revealed that she's clearly set up as some sort of. We've mentioned Hannibal Lecter already. But I think she set up some sort of super monster, some sort of one-off, some sort of unique living human <laughs> alien queen kind of thing. And I don't think any... I, I certainly don't... Okay. again, I'm, I'm normal, so I don't really know. But, but then you've got what, you know, what Fincher was saying about, you know, audiences he, he felt were clearly dividing into Team Amy and Team Nick. Now, the idea that there could be a Team Amy... Hmm. That's terrifying. ...for any more than about 15 minutes is yeah. is utterly outrageous. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is there is an element of that. I think people are, are seeing this as more realistic than I think it's meant to be. I, I wonder whether that's... whether you can apply that to the film as a whole. I think that the trick that the book pulled uh, early on was that everyone 
is Team Amy at the beginning, and yeah. by the end, everyone is Team Nick. Cause the point is, is that it's all about performance. The first half mm. is very much from her perspective. It's all performance. It's her idealised version of herself and their relationship, and she paints him as a feckless idiot, which of course he is. But then, of course, at the halfway point, we learn that there are far worse things to be than a feckless idiot. So a lunatic killer being one of them. Uh, and I think again, by the end of the book, everyone's sympathies have kind of done a complete one eighty, and you and you've fallen into the other camp. I think the same is true of the book uh, of the film. Sorry, um, but what works really read about this would be haven't really touched on is I think the casting is what makes this film I really do I think um, in the book the first half you have no sympathy for Nick whatsoever because he's such an ass. whereas Ben Affleck is so inherently likeable he lends that character a certain you know warmth um, and I think Fincher said this about Rosamund Pike that she's a kind of an unknowable actress like what do we really know about Rosamund Pike I'm not saying that she's got a string of buried exes somewhere but uh, but you don't know a lot about her and I think that that kind of frosty exterior really works very well for this film I agree. Miranda Frosty. Miranda Frosty. Yeah, that's right. There we go. Yeah, I kind of agree with that to an extent. I I, I thought Rosamund Pike's fantastic in this. There's been talk of uh, Oscar nomination already. Uh, and why the hell not? The interesting thing about her is that she's got, to quote Quentin Jaws, you know, she's got black eyes, the doll's eyes, you know, and the, 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 very inscrutable and very unreadable. Mm. I think there was one slight criticism and maybe this is because we come to it knowing what Amy is in the early scenes when she's meant to be the paragon of virtue and um, actually amazing Amy you can see the signs of psychosis on her face but maybe I was looking for them more, more, <laughs> than, more than more than most but I agree that Ben Affleck who's essentially paying Ben Affleck after his casting as Batman was announced where everybody hates him and everyone's piling on him on message boards <laughs> and the TV uh, I thought he was very very good in this movie and, and carried it uh, carried it well yeah, you made a really interesting point when we were talking about it, James, about the about that sort of third act shift when she becomes evil and and it all gets a bit sort of grand grand guignol. It's theatre, isn't it? It the, is. What theater. Amy's doing is yeah. theatre. She comes back caked in blood, and mm. the blood she doesn't make any effort to remove it mm. for some time. She goes through like three important scenes caked in blood like no one gives her a flannel or a wet wipe no one thinks to just give her yeah a moist towel but the whole the whole story really is about is about theater and it's about it's about outward perception because the whole point is her childhood was false because she was forced to live this life as amazing amy and then she writes this diary for the police which is this completely uh contrived amazing amy life and then at the end when she comes back she is absolutely it's complete theater she's playing a character she's playing a role it's all very fake and i think the only grains of truth in the entire film is when we see stuff from uh, from nick's perspective because he's many things uh, but a dissembler actually isn't one of them really so. Except about the affair. Except about that, the affair. That's where uh, Fincher said, you know, you could see the audience's sympathies divide, and I can believe that momentarily. Mm. You, you suddenly, you know, there is a there is a segment of the audience that's going to be entirely on Amy's side. Also, because the level of fuckwittery required to while <laughs> media camped outside your house, you're suspecting your wife's murder to have your twenty year old, you know, sex kitten girl or super twat, as she's called in the film, turn except, up. Except and, Americans pronounce it twat. Twat, yes, which really uh, annoys me turn up and shag you in your sister's living room is uh, is quite spectacular it is and I, again very good casting there I mean just casting someone who's just quite so um, alienating for <laughs> I what I imagine most of the audience is you was, know? It, uh, was it Amy refers to it later on um, with, my, with her uh, come on me tits interesting but it, it, there's a uh, I love the sly humour of the film I, I was surprised mm. by how funny the film is and uh the elliptical editing style that Fincher uses to go back and forth between Nick's story and Amy's story early on, I think, really made me laugh. There's a lovely, there's a lovely cut between <laughs> Nick about to have sex with uh, Andy, his lover, 
and then it cuts to Amy's diary and her voiceover. The first words are, my husband has come. Undone. <laughs> it's just such a lovely, <laughs> little dark, sardonic twist of humour that I really, really liked. No, I agree. It's uh, Fincher and company talked about it being a dark comedy in the Empire feature, and I was a, a little bit, what? Yeah. Because you don't particularly get that from the book. There is obviously a, 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 a you know, a thread of pitch black humour running through it, and there are very kind of... Um, very perceptive things that it says in quite a humorous way. I mean, the, the very famous cool girl speech mm. um, at the beginning, which is shortened but still there in the film. Um, you know, those are those are kind of funny in a very, very bleak way, but it, not to the extent that the film is. Mm. And I think, you know, some of some of Affleck's reactions on being asked stuff about his wife, like when he when he has to read one of Amy's treasure hunt clues in front of the police and he's just like, I don't know. Mm. You know, just that that sort of world weariness is really amusing. Um, a lot of the uh, the reactions, am I supposed to know my wife's blood type? Is yes. just that's yeah, probably not. I guess I don't know. Are you? Do you know your wife's blood type? I don't even know my own blood type. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I was doing my uh, medical kit ID yesterday for the health app on, we on the iPhone, and I that, <laughs> yeah, why not red? <laughs> I know it's red. I think it's red. Phil shed Chris's blood immediately. <laughs> um, and it's interesting you mentioned the the clues there. I thought the scavenger hunt uh, that they have is, is obviously a far bigger part of the book. Uh, it goes on for quite a long period. There's many more steps to it. Its importance is greater, and obviously, it's ultimately that which ties him up with such a neat bow for the police. And I thought it was quite an interesting decision to all but eject that whole sequence you know it's 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 quite cursory in the film i mean you know it's it's the central part at the beginning but it, it's not quite as involved as it was as it was in print and it's it's interesting because in the book you can tell gillian flynn's very proud of the way mm. she's sort of put that all together uh, and fincher mentions that he's never met anyone quite so uh, prepared to kill her darlings and i thought that was a really good example of that that she's just said yeah this was clever it was brilliant but frankly it's already two and a half mm. hours so yeah you know. And I think it's it is actually it's also a, a very neat little summation of the relationship. And I think it's it's real passive aggressiveness oh, on Amy's part, and much more so. much more down to earth passive aggressiveness of someone expecting their partner to remember all this stuff about them yeah. uh, from six months or eight months or ten months ago, uh, and 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 some, some somehow solve these clues, which is not really how the world works. I think for a lot of people, so. Uh, thought that was that was actually a genius portrayal of their relationship i wonder if fincher didn't look at that device and think he's already done it with the game perhaps yeah. but um, i mean there there are a lot of his 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 other work sort of evidence in this aren't there you know there's bits of seven there's bits of the game you know you feel all that stuff it's it's perfect it's a perfect marriage of of material and director this mm. it's almost like it's written for him and, yeah. and i think that's what kind of makes it so watchable what's really interesting is that obviously they're collaborating again on utopia which i find uh quite fascinating because uh, she's writing the screen he's directing the whole first season isn't he yeah for anyone who doesn't know it's the uh, the Channel 4 show by Dennis Kelly uh, with Neil Maskell in it uh, which is gloriously mental and sadistic and violent and, and very very British so I'd be really interested to see what the uh, what Fincher does with that and uh, and how they collaborate on that one as mm. well but you're right they obviously have a shared sensibility mm. because otherwise they wouldn't be getting together again on a different note the last two films I've seen this and then Nightcrawler Mm. And I definitely can't spoil anything to do with Nightcrawler. But coming seeing the, both those films, it does make you feel a bit despairing of, of, of the media. And this is a film that, that is not afraid to make you despair of the media. Um, I think that, deservedly so. written by a journalist. Th- yeah. There's, yeah, there's two, there's two or three moments where Nick gets caught in not a lie, but sort of the truth in a way. When people come up and one way he poses and he does this sort of really painful 
grin for the cameras when he's at the press conference mm. in front of the poster of his missing wife, which is inappropriate. And then somebody yeah. comes and demands a selfie with him where he, in, for politeness's sake, he smiles. And then he realizes what he's done and he tries to get it back. And then he just antagonizes the person. Um, and it makes you think that actually, and then and then Missy Pyle, who's really good in this, another one of the really, really rich supporting cast who plays this kind of um, pitchfork, uh, rousing kind of demagogue on TV, trying to stir up hatred against Nick, kind of comes comes to him into the house at the end and basically, and he says, well, look, you know, all the stuff that you were trying to stir up, is all it was all bollocks. None of it was true. And she goes, well, you know, she basically says, well, it was true at the time. And that's all that matters in that mm. news cycle. That moment was true. Just that those pictures of Nick smiling at his dead wife at that moment were what Nick represented, even though it didn't. And then Nightcrawler taps into that as well. Yeah. And then this is the weekend where you have the Sunday Mirror journalist who's entrapping, you know, catfishing MPs to get a story. And you just think, mm. Christ, what's real and what's true anymore? It's really depressing. Well, I think the film nails really, really well is that is a sanctimonious rush to judgment that the US media in particular has and it is seeping into this country as well where if you don't behave exactly how people think you should behave in a certain situation no matter what the reasons whether you're in shock or whether you're just a kind of reserved guy or maybe you just had a moment of weakness then they will hound you and hound you mm. relentlessly having said that I kind of felt that the, the portrayal of the media not necessarily the portrayal of the media but I felt that uh, one of the things that was slightly disappointing about the film was the way it conveyed information through TV shows because I thought Fincher's a better director than that. He's a better director than there's literally a scene we've all seen dozens and dozens of times in movies. There's a slight twist in this one, but literally the the, the where, um, where Go, Margot, played by Carrie Coon, uh, says to Nick, look, they're talking about you on the news, and she turns on the news, and lo and behold, they're talking about him on the news. And I know it's shorthand, and I know you have to do something like that in the movie, but we've seen that scene. And I just think that there might have been a smarter way to convey information I, at times. To be fair to her, in terms of realism, I think she TiVo'd it. <laughs> no, seriously, because she yeah. pauses it as he comes in and turns off the TV, and then when she was actually, it resumes exactly where she left off. Uh, yeah, it's the wonders of PVR. Hmm. You thought it through. You're immensely <laughs> Okay. I would exclude it. I would think, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a damning indictment of the media. We are all part of the problem. But you also, are. frankly, it's just such a, <laughs> I mentioned this before, relentlessly cynical look at uh, at coupling and relationships. It's, it, it's not the worst date movie in the world, but I would say it's probably the worst anniversary movie in the world. Don't watch it with Blue Valentine on your anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> You're not making it through that. Amen to that. Unless you've got a lawyer with you. And speaking of lawyers, I thought Tyler Perry was really good. Yes. I've never been a big fan of, of his until this. I thought he was great in that role. Just the right side of kind of brash and overconfident, but actually also good and believable. Yeah, quite yes. charming, actually. And charming. Sympathetic, indeed. actually. Yes, he came across that way, which I don't think he does so much in print. Yeah, he came in, he owned the movie. Uh, intriguing, I'd love to see the first day on set, given that he has confessed to not knowing who David Fincher was uh, <laughs> prior to being offered the role. I'd love to see Really? That. Yeah. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know who David Fincher was. Did he think this was going to be Tyler Perry's Gone Girl? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But Medea's yeah, Gone Girl. Medea's Gone Girl. God, it's it's a good solid cast all the way through. You know, yeah. uh, from um, from uh, Kim Dickens as as Boney and Carrie Coon. I mentioned. I thought she's very very good as 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 Go. Strange nickname. Threw me a couple of times because people keep saying Go to her and I, she's standing still. She's not moving anywhere. But uh, it's a really really uh, well rounded out cast as you might mm. imagine. I liked uh, Casey Wilson as the yes. as a neighbour because there's that wonderful scene where Nick almost gets the crowd back on side. Almost. You know, you can see people kind of softening towards him. You can see people reconsidering him. And then she comes in 
and that just crumbles to dust. It's uh, it's nicely nicely played. Mm, absolutely. Uh, where do we where do we stand on uh, Neil Patrick Harris? I liked him actually in this. Mm. Uh, it, he depending on how you look at it, he almost feels like he's in a different movie, but uh, but in the nicest possible way because that character has to come across as almost if not more unbalanced than Amy. Yes. Uh, because he's also mental, if not necessarily a complete sociopath. He's obviously got very severe mummy issues, but incredibly controlling, possessive. She's basically a prisoner in that house. He all but threatens to rape her at one point. It's, you know, it's it's quite a, a difficult sequence. I know it plays out in the book very much as you're thinking, well, to a certain extent, she gets her comeuppance, she gets robbed, she gets beaten up by those two people at the motel, and then she ends up, you know, with Desi, a prisoner in the house. I'm not sure that that justifies slitting his throat open during sex, but, you know. I love, by the way, the scream of rage, just impotent rage that uh, that, that Amy has mm. uh, after she's robbed in the, in the motel, where mm. she just screams into a pillow. Uh, even the worst person in the world can occasionally find people <laughs> who can, you know, get the, get the jump on her. Yeah, the interesting thing, um, I wanted to talk about Neil Patrick Harris because I wanted to talk about that scene, I guess, in particular that really fucked up twisted death scene which is very different from the book it happens off off page I guess in the book it happens and she tells a story and she she drugs him he falls asleep then she kills him in this one it's this horrible mm. almost Cronenbergian fusion of sex and death and rebirth and it's just <laughs> it's it's uh, incredible. What do, what do we? Uh, what, what's her take on the uh, on the Desi scene? It's it's really unpleasant. I think part of the reason it's unpleasant is because of the the slightly. I think Rosamund Pike called it sort of Doris Day, Rock Hudson scenes before it, where they're being awfully, awfully, you know, careful with one another, and and she's you know swanning about in her nice little negligee, you know, pouring his orange juice for breakfast and virtually warming his slippers before he walks through the door in the evening. And it's that I think it's that contrast that makes it quite as shocking as it really is not that it wouldn't be shocking on its own but it's uh, it, it's pretty powerful stuff um and of course we have seen you know the the scenes of her preparing for the incident with uh, mm. with a little framing device of of posing for the cameras mm. uh, with uh with strawberry juice all over her mouth um or whatever's needed to to show his violence but yeah it's uh it's it's unpleasant. I mean, and also you need somebody likable for that. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris. You know, come on, he's a national treasure. He's an international treasure at this point. The, it's lampshaded, isn't it? With the but you see the book cutter. You see mm-hmm. her. You know, I don't even know how to say this verbally. Uh, preparing for the, you know, the, the the to incriminate him with rape beforehand. Yeah. And then mm. you sort of forget. You don't know what's happening, and then it happens, and you're like. It's a very shocking uh, moment. It goes yeah, on. It's, yeah. It lingers. First of all, you're reeling from the fact you've just seen Neil Patrick Harris's arse. Uh, <laughs> and that it, that doesn't prepare you for what, what literally comes next. Um, it's a very interesting scene. Uh, my favourite bit about that that moment, if you could have a favourite bit about that oh, scene, uh, is, is at the end when she's covered in blood. And uh, you think for a second that even Amy... This is the first time she's killed. This, is, you know, she even think that oh, for a second, it's it's touched some sort of humanity inside her, but no, she's just trying to swish her hair back to make sure that she gets no blood on her hair. It's just such a perfect little moment that uh, I didn't uh, condone. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that, Chris. <laughs> Otherwise, clarify. we might have been in doubt. Cannot clarify that enough. Do not kill people with box cutters at any time. It's the second best box cutter death. I would say in, in uh, entertainment history, not not movie history. Because you're thinking of Breaking Bad. I am thinking of Breaking Bad. Mm. Yeah, 
Or is it even better? I don't know. Write in, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> do you write in and tell do us? Do we have to rank box cutter deaths now? In an Why not? Direction. This is Why it's not? getting darker than the movie. Why not? I've mentioned Oscar a couple of times, specifically in relation to Rosamund Pike's performance, but do we think that this is an Oscar contender in general? Where do we think it stands? It's very early in, in the in the in the race that tiresome word. But where do we think it stands? You know, the Academy has in previous years rewarded movies that are mm. violent and adult in theme and content. So it's not out of the question. I think it could be a nominee. I think it would be unlikely to win because it is so cynical. And it, I think it's not, you know, we've had certainly dark movies do well at the Oscars, but there tends to be a little bit more of a ray of light at the end of them uh, than there is in this one. Or they tend to be sort of serving some very high per- high-minded purpose. And in that case, Oscar as well will overlook, you know, violence and, and, and all the rest. I, I feel like this might be a little bit too purely and I mean this in the best possible way that you can mean it pulp crime for uh, a serious best picture race I Mm. would have thought. I wonder if David Fincher though elevates it beyond that and also I'm thinking about something like No Country for Old Men which I think has uh, an even bleaker ending uh, than, than this and that one best picture. It does but it it still has a slight note, note of not hope but you know, some kind of good man summing it up in the Tommy Lee Jones speech at the very, very end. I feel like this is a little bit more cynical even than that, actually. And it's a little bit closer to home and you can't dissociate from it in the way that you can maybe for No Country for Old Men. Um, Yeah. You can't hear them in years to come talking about fondly about Gone Girl Night at the Oscars because it is that sort of... It's corrosive, this film. I don't see it as an Oscar, as a strong Oscar hope, I've got to be honest, but I would love to see Rosamund Pike get some nomination of because mm. I think she's fantastic and I, I certainly wouldn't you know argue against a David Fincher nod because I think it's a, it's a magnificently made film um, I'm just not sure it's it's got the flavour of best picture about it what about uh, the music uh, um, from uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross a third collaboration with, with Fincher do you think it's mm. worth I love it for the sort of weird distorted discordant sort of storybook vibe that it gave to the whole thing mm. really undercut the the action it was quite i it was nicely subdued i thought it wasn't obtrusive the music and obviously it's really a useful way of changing shifting the tone from that kind of as our review empire's review by ian freer points out that it's got that kind of like what a david fincher rom-com would look like <laughs> when when they're sort of when they're doing the um the, the the wooing part at the beginning and the music in that is quite got a slightly fairy tale air yeah. Uh, and then it becomes more and more discordant, like you say, more jarring and electronic as it goes on. But it's not it, it, not as pronounced as, say, The Social Network, which is a great score, but much, much more up in your face, I think. In this yeah, one. I agree. Uh, we have some readers' questions, because some readers have actually seen the film uh, somehow. Uh, imagine they're going to screenings rather than downloading these things illegally on BitTorrent. Don't do that. Uh, right, here's a load of questions from Gail Kuzak. We'll just we'll take them as quickly as we we can. Uh, number one, why do you think Nick Dunn's character was more sympathetic than in the book? We've kind of touched upon that. But. Yeah. I think it is mostly Ben Affleck. Ben. I think also the audience needs something to root for. Mm, I think is. it's as simple as that. But it is interesting how he doesn't really seem from the off. He is very, I think, straight down the middle, right from the off. Even mm. the, when I was reading the book initially, I thought, oh, he has done something here for the first four or five chapters. Even from his point of view, I thought, oh, he's complicit in some way in her disappearance. 
But I think from the off in the, in the film, you don't think that. That's a very, very good point, because you do genuinely think that when you read the book. And I don't think it crossed anyone's mind in the film that he was responsible. I don't know. I thought I thought if they have changed the ending as much as had been rumoured, that maybe that would be the big change um, at one point. Change. It would be a heck of a change. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, you know, I think he plays it nicely when he when he brings the police in around. He's clearly trying to be the, you know, in the same way that, he, that she's always putting on a front, he's always putting on a front as well. And he's trying very much to play the the straightforward guy who's rightly concerned about his wife but he's clearly not panicking yet because why would he panic so you know he's kind of he's kind of again putting on the facade of trying to be exactly helpful enough to the police without you know going overboard well equally there's the fact that as he says later on he was kind of relieved when yeah. she'd gone so i don't think he's genuinely that upset he's yeah. he's going through the motions and the emotions that you that are expected of you exactly but uh, not quite sure how to react to it of course you could say she was gone a few years beforehand mm, am i right mm. it's very <laughs> thank you man yeah uh okay again uh why would he stay with her she seemed more straightforwardly nuts in the film uh surely he must see their child would be in danger well that's interesting because the film doesn't play up uh, the fact in the book that he is very keen to have a child you're mm. actually left uncertain about whether he wants a child at all um, and and also in the book you know they develop uh, the, the situation with his father a bit more which which kind of sets out the fact that he is determined not to be a rubbish father as his dad was and be there for his child which kind of makes that decision to stay much more understandable I think by losing some of that you do lose a little bit of his his rationale, but I think it, what the film does instead is just emphasise the power that she has over him and, and the terror that he has of her at the end instead. Who's it says to him at one point? Isn't it Tanner Bolt says to him as well that um, he should be thanking Amy because he's got a book deal, they're about to become a lifetime movie of the week, they've franchised a bar in what seems like a very short space of time, but nevertheless, <laughs> they say, you know, so he's presumably become the millionaire that he always thought that he would become as a writer. Uh, through the simple expedient of having an absolute nut job for a wife, which is uh, yeah. which is fairly fairly simple, uh, yeah. Put that in your your Tinder account. <laughs> I am a nut job. I will make you a million dollars. I will put you through hell initially, but still, uh, everything's in the long run. But yeah, the kid thing's interesting. I wanted to ask you guys: Do you think the kid? Uh, Amy says that uh, she basically artificially inseminated herself. She's used uh, Nick's uh, semen which is another word I never thought we'd hear in the uh, Emperor podcast, along with shibboleth. Uh, but uh, there we go. Uh, she's used his semen to artificially inseminate herself, but could the kid be Desi's? Uh, in a I really, think... really dark twist. No, well, the, he's, I mean, the first thing he says is, I want a paternity test, doesn't he? I think she's, she's far too clever for that. I do wonder that the timing is awfully quick and convenient, isn't it? Yeah. things aren't necessarily that simple. It is a cordial but, um, a little bit. But, yeah, it's quite cruel as well, the way she goes, you know, your child will hate you, your son will hate you, and she goes, I'll make sure of it, yeah. which is a very, very clear... She's pulling at his, his strings very, very, very firmly, and I, I think that's what prompts that outburst of rage. It's not everything that she's done to him. It's that kind of almost sort of pre-paternal wrath that slams her against the wall. Um, so I think you understand why he'd say. But as Helen said, I don't think they really establish how much he wants to be a father in in the in the film so maybe you haven't quite earned it at that point I honestly don't see how how else the film could have ended hmm. I know a lot of people are uh, you know because we've already had a lot of tweets about this and, uh, you know people from people who haven't necessarily seen the film but we have a lot, a lot of tweets of people going hated the end of the book and I think it's kind of because of the, the reasons we touched on earlier she doesn't get her her customary movie come up and she doesn't get thrown off a building or impaled or anything or mm. but I don't I, 
I would have been disappointed had the film gone down that route. Mm. But it's not that she doesn't get her come up, and she just wins. You know I mean? She wins on every level. Like their financial woes are gone. He's now a better husband because he has to be a better husband. Mm. You know, it's almost like every single. So she's had the perfect ending, really, for her. Mm. Um, so it's it's the inverse of a traditional ending. She's even had a sort of revenge on her parents, if assuming that she puts all those details about her unhappy childhood in in the book that eventually yeah. comes out. Would you love to see the next amazing Amy book? <laughs> based on the events of Gone Girl that would be interesting uh, Gail Cusack again does anyone else think that Amy's weight gain was totally unnecessary and pointless she did do a Brando at one point mm. she, she went full Vito Corleone with the, uh, with the, the chipmunk cheeks I wasn't quite sure <laughs> whether she genuinely was supposed to be padding out her mouth, you know, like it was disguised, <laughs> or whether she just gained a huge amount of weight in like a week. Well, she, you do see her um, eating junk food nonstop. Yeah, we all do that, but I don't look like Vito Corleone. It's like, you know. It's, yeah, she did like four Christian Bell movies in the space of two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and then she loses it over the course of like a week as well. Because yeah. then she says, go on a diet. And yeah. the next time you see her, she's perfect again. And incidentally has had a haircut. Where exactly did she get said? Well, she did it. She did it herself again. It's I guess. particularly good. It's properly styled. <laughs> this isn't like a you know in the mirror with a pair of. Uh, or he did uh, it. Maybe I was going to say maybe Desi hired someone because he has loads of people. Uh, the film does fall down a little bit. Uh, I think uh, he did it. It's another control thing, and I think that's in the book, isn't it? As well that she she puts on weight and then he makes her lose it. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. a, I, I think it's again it's an underdeveloped idea in the film, but it's meant to be about. I guess mm. the control of women's bodies. He's mm. a very good stylist. What a what a loss! <laughs> what a loss to the world. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. But uh, the, the whole thing with the cameras, you you do get the sense that if the police really started to dig into her story, <laughs> it would all fall apart within seconds. So yeah. I, I like that moment where Boney is pushing and pushing and yeah. pushing and pushing, and doesn't get anywhere. And then at the end, Amy gives her a look that basically says, "I've won, up yours." Question from Pete Wright, who asks, uh, "How could Amy hide all the man cave stuff she brought into Margot's shed without her knowledge?" Good question. She works all day. Margot does, I guess. That's a good point. She works at the bar, and and Amy would know when she was working, presumably. It's Am- a man shed. Amazon Prime, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> they just come in, install it in the woodshed. Uh, final question from Patrick Walsh, and it's quite a long one, actually. Regarding the final 20 minutes when the film lurches fully into melodrama, uh, if this was any other director, I'd be usually thinking a director like David Fincher would have handled this with much more tact and subtlety. I found it really weird he let things slip so far from his typical deftness and understatement. Thoughts? I'm a massive Fincher fan, but the end felt distinctively unfinchery and ruined a strong build-up for me. I agree a bit with that, actually. I thought the last 20 minutes was a bit jarring and the tone shifted and it didn't always shift in a particularly smooth way. Um, and bits and, the, and people were laughing in the screening at things that I don't, you know, that weren't funny in the Finchery way. They were just sort of silly funny. You know, I thought the blood thing was a bit much at times. Mm. Those scenes in the police station are a bit much. The theatre that you refer to, I, I know what you mean, but I think the film bought into that, not just her character. I mean, is, is it not also partly that the film doesn't really adhere very well to cinematic grammar in that, as Ian points out in the review, most films ramp up towards the finale, whereas this mm. one very much deflates in the third act uh, and it kind of it slows right down as you get into the ending, which perhaps doesn't really sit well. Maybe, maybe that mirrors Nick's... Uh... Nick's hopes and dreams yeah, deflating perhaps. when his wife turns up. But did you feel a different, a slightly different tone in the last twenty, thirty minutes? Because I certainly did. I just, it just felt, mm, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel as chilling. It felt a bit ot over the top to well, me. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is. It's a movie that isn't entirely based on building up to the twist and then what happens after the twist and then the last twenty minutes. Maybe it's just 
bringing it home, racing mm. through stuff just to get to the ending. There's a little bit of Lord of the Ringsy, Return of the Kingness about it, about it. I think in the last few minutes, there's just you know there's quite a few loose ends to be tied up. There's you know there's several different scenes of of essentially Nick adjusting to his new reality. Yeah. yeah, and it so yes, it does feel a little bit of you know tying up rather than you know exploding. And the mama kills, obviously. But where does everybody place this one in the Fincher canon? Hmm. I still prefer Fight Club and probably Seven. Upper mid-table. That Upper, seems yeah. fair. European, yeah. Europa Cup sort of area. I think we all think it's a... It's a <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I, I, I really, really enjoyed the film. I think it's better than the book. Yes. Can so I say I. that? But yeah, it's, it's a four for me. I think it's a high four for me, whereas I think the man has made, in my opinion to absolutely incontrovertible masterpieces in Seven and Fight Club I don't think this is up there no I don't even but I, I'm going to go see it again but I don't think it's even the, the, on the level of the social network no I don't either or even Zodiac but it's better yeah. than Panic Room and yes. the yes. Benjamin Button his video for Madonna's Express Yourself no it's not better oh, than come on. Alien <laughs> 3 or we'll argue about that and the oh, of House of I love the game I'm a game I'm a I gamer like yeah. yeah, I would say sort of on that level. I really enjoy the game. And it's similarly sort of dark and twisted. Right, that is it for our Gone Girl spoiler special. Hope you enjoyed us rambling on like idiots for 40 minutes or so. And hope you enjoyed the David Fincher interview. Our next spoiler special will be Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, which will be out in November. And then followed up by that, it'll be The Hunger Games Mockingjay, part the first. That'll be out at the end of November as well. Uh, until then, the regular podcast obviously continues every Friday. Do listen to it if, you, if you'd like. Until then, Helen. Farewell. You are the gone girl. I'm gone. James. Yeah. You're the gone guy. Indeed. Uh-oh. Phil. Yeah. I've run out of alliteration. Yay. And I, it's, what's gone in Iranian? <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, goodbye for me. Thanks for listening. See you next time.